I'm your host, Ken Lane, and this is the show where I bring on stellar guests from across the API universe to discuss, debate, and solve the latest topics around APIs and API first. All right. Well, here we are for another episode of Breaking Changes. I'm pretty excited today to have Dekel Tonkel from uh, VMware. He is a founding member of Cloud Foundry and Global Field CTO at VMware. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm. Uh, we we a mutual friend connected us, and and I once I just started hearing you talk about API gateways and management, I was like, all right, I, I got to do a show with this guy. So <laughs> let's start. Let's start with the basics. Uh, what does VMware do? Uh, so VMware is uh, striving to make multi-cloud a reality, which means helping build the applications of tomorrow on any infrastructure. Uh, so the company is now um, evolving to anything, any infrastructure, any workload, um, any cloud. So the any is the word. Nice. And I'm, as I'm learning the VMware landscape, there's there's several dimensions, and 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 what you do, what you've done in your history. What is Cloud Foundry? Yeah. So Cloud Foundry was originally started as a, a, an attempt to open source or to open in general this, this platform as a service landscape, which was very um, integrated or, or closed with uh, solutions like Heroku. And uh, we open sourced this on the same uh, principles of developers should never care about the plumbing of the infrastructure and should be able to just push their codes into uh um, any environment and be super productive. And the the idea behind Cloud Foundry is in the original uh, launch, we had this triangle of uh, you can plug in any, any development framework, any services and run it on any infrastructure. And this was kind of the beginning of this uh, um, open platforms era, but in a sense it was um, a little bit early because there wasn't really a multi-cloud. <laughs> there was kind of one game in town at that time. Um, so, uh, but I think where where we made a lot of, of headway and kind of how we reached the, the, the business growth that uh, the company had is mostly around this developer experience and the fact that developers can really become 90% more productive by using this platform. They, they don't care about anything else. And, and their operators can trust this because it has all the security features they need. Nice. So one, one more question to kind of zoom in and bring this even closer to APIs. What yeah. is Tanzu? <laughs> so uh, as you probably know, uh, VMware acquired uh, Pivotal. So for me personally, it's kind of a full circle because Cloud Foundry was started at uh, VMware. And then we spun out to Pivotal, had fun for uh, five, six years, went IPO and, and um, you know, been very successful from a business standpoint. And um, uh, VMware uh, acquired us along with um, a few other companies uh, on the infrastructure side with Heptio, um, on the observability side with uh, Wavefront and, and others. Uh, and the goal, and that became Tanzu, which is uh, kind of this brand name for um, every, every, uh, all the technologies that kind of sits on top of the infrastructure layer to make 
modern applications or reality. So it's the developer experience, it's the DevSecOps experience, and it's the infrastructure experience of running Kubernetes. Um, so that's in a nutshell, the Tanzu is like, think about it as the, uh, um, the Cloud Foundry 2.0 on, on a Kubernetes infrastructure with any cloud um, and on-prem, off-prem, with everything that comes around it. Nice. Well, well, we'll we'll dive into the details here in a little bit, but I usually like to, to get to know you, the the person I'm interviewing, a little bit more before we dive into the technical details. So, what's your story? How did you end up at VMware? You gave a little bit of it with the pivotal jump here, but yeah. how did you end up at VMware? So, my career is kind of upside down. Uh, I spent the majority of my uh, the first decade of my career in in small startups and the second decade in large enterprises. Usually it's kind of the, the opposite. Um, so I had to worry if I'm going to have a paycheck next Monday uh, in the beginning, not at the end of my career. So uh, a bunch of different startups. I'm originally from Israel. I moved to the uh, U.S. Uh, also from a, from a startup. Uh, um, those startups were primarily on the infrastructure side and then uh, a little bit on the platform side. Uh, at some point, I said, uh, yeah, I got to look for something bigger. So I joined Yahoo. <laughs> and uh, like from a small Israeli startup to Yahoo, that was kind of an interesting transition and, a, and an interesting learning curve. And at uh, Yahoo, I helped um, the making Hadoop accessible for developers. So that was kind of my first uh, kind of engagement with public APIs that developers can use to... Uh, uh, access broad set of infrastructure. If you remember things like uh, YDN, YQL, um, th those were kind of uh, under the... <laughs> uh, I helped do some damage there and also around Hadoop user group and so on. So um, it was kind of an interesting experience. Yahoo at the time was a company that changed a lot. So um, fun and less fun at the same time. Yeah, um, Yahoo is great. Yahoo lit a fire under my API imagination, the developer network, the query language. Yeah. So you, I think you probably had a little, you're a little bit responsible for me getting into the API space. Thank you. <laughs> well, uh, guilty as charged, I think, uh, why do, why DN at least, the Yahoo developer network was uh, a really um, humbling lesson for me, what, what it means to have like this tiny little API that you access, but on the back end, it, you know, millions and millions of stuff need to happen. So it was kind of the, uh, the first, my first exposure to this uh, enormous gap between the external interface and what happens underneath. And, and we're going to speak about it, I believe, later around the internal APIs, which is kind of what makes me excited because you, you have like four or five external APIs, but you have thousands of internal APIs. And we were struggling with that even back then with YDN on... Um, like there was no structure for these internal APIs. There was actually, we didn't even call them APIs. It was APIs for the external stuff, right? So I think today organization realizes it's very different. Yeah, no, we'll definitely get into kind of the, the details and nuance of all of that. So let's let's start with gateways. Cause I think some of the things you said in our, our previous conversations about not just the technology of gateways, but the business and politics of it, I found pretty interesting. <laughs> so what 
what's the role of an API gateway within the enterprise, would you say, in 2021? Yeah, so uh, I like to start answering these type of questions with a quote from uh, Jerry Seinfeld. Uh, People are the worst. So, you know, technology stuff is is cool and fun and we love it because we're techies. But at the end of the day, it's the politics and the internal organization structure that either make it happen or kill it uh, before it has any chance to happen. And and APIs are no different. the the gate the role of the traditional role of gateways if we can use the term traditional is like you this was an operation um, uh, game right developers although the name is <laughs> has application in it aside from the acronym uh, it's you know it had nothing to do with with the developers they had no access to those giant uh, centralized gateway it was very gated and very closed and, and it was an operational show uh, soup to nuts. Um, I think that we, we see a tremendous uh, shift in that approach and the roles of the gateways are following up uh, that change. And that change is driven by, I think, two or three uh, major um, um, kind of uh, shifts or, or a push. So the first one is how do you build Building microservices, when you have five of them, that's awesome. When you have 500 of them, uh, how your teams collaborate? What's the best way to actually build those complex applications and business applications that have dozens or maybe hundreds of microservices underneath them? What is the right contract between uh, those development teams to make them productive? And we see uh, for a couple of of quarters now, maybe even years, that uh, internal APIs are uh, emerging as that standard. So the the easiest and the most convenient way for developers to collaborate between those different microservices that are being built is those internal APIs. Uh, So that's kind of one thing. And we'll get to what the challenges of that uh, in a second. Uh, The second thing is that the the notion of, hey, let's rewrite 15 million lines of Java code for our legacy apps and make it modernize, that's maybe lucrative for the global size of the world, but in reality, it never happens. Too expensive, uh, too hard to start, too much politics, and, and that's not how uh, app modernization, uh, if to use another buzzword, is actually happening. And we, there is, and I see that every day. I talk to hundreds of, of customers and prospects of, of Tanzu. And there is, a, there is a different approach that proves more efficient. And to use a term um, we use internally, don't, it's not approved by anyone. It's not a marketing term. So <laughs> just between us, uh, Brownfield APIs which is like, how do you uh, use a internal APIs to uh, access or to make the old and the new work well together? And um, so, so I think, and, and the third aspect of all of that is that um, along, along the lines of cloud native security, um, there is no way to kind of say, hey, let's create these gated environments that everything is secured and we're just adding more stuff to our firewall. You've got to create a more dynamic and a more elastic way of, of changing the networks uh, to follow that that um, development lifecycle. And, and service mesh is kind of one of the things that, that we see out there. And, and how does that tie into API? We, we can also talk about that. 
Um, so if you take all of that, that's, that sounds great. <laughs> but in a nutshell, it means that your API development and API delivery needs to be part of your software-defined lifecycle. And that's not what happens in a lot of cases that we customers we talk to, specifically the ones that already adopted this massive centralized gateway. So they have this gigantic uh, instance of Apigee or MuleSoft, and they have this kind of a set of operators that are guarding this with their lives. No developer can touch it. And now we expect a route change or an API change that's done between two development teams to be part of it. So you get this nice CI/CD uh, cycles <laughs> that takes maybe hours, and then you wait three weeks for an API route to be modified. Mm. So not really part of your CI uh, or your software-defined lifecycle. So, to, so essentially, what we are does that does that resonate in terms of the? Yeah, no, I would say that. I mean, that's exactly where I wanted to go. Is is in a lot of organizations I I. I work with at Postman and even before Postman is you go in and you talk to leadership and they're like, what I ask them what their gateways are. And they exactly what you say. They got Apogee. We got MuleSoft. We've got uh Mashery, Tibco, something in there. And I'm okay, great. And I go around and I talk to teams and I'm like, all right, talk. How do you get things into the gateway? And similar CI CD, you know, the technical flow works pretty well, but, the people flow is 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 yeah. a blocker is 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 a gateway or or a gated not even a gateway a gate <laughs> yeah. and and then they're like well we use kong or we use tyke or we use nginx or some other solution and then when we have to we publish up there and then because of acquisitions you'll you'll see other even more gateways because of acquisitions so it reflects uh what i'm seeing on the ground as well is the role of a gateway but what caught my my ear when you described it is you're not just describing it in technical terms, you're describing it in business and political terms as well, which makes uh, you know the old guard API gateway feel very much like the Oracle database of, of this next generation. Yeah, that, that, that's a great analogy. And when we are thinking about this, we're actually thinking not in terms of gateways. Uh, another uh, you know, internal terms that I'll deny if, if you repeat API grid, right? So we're kind of looking at this problem that is much bigger than the gateway because the gateway is one uh, link in that chain. And the chain has to, how do you make API a uh, first-class citizen in your um, software-defined lifecycle, in your uh, pipelines, in your change management? Um, how do you not take it out of the hands of the operation? That's not what I'm saying, but there, there is room for that external gateway, but there's got to be um, another set of solutions that addresses the, the, the fast-changing internal APIs and potentially also those, those few externals. But usually when I go and talk to a customer, they have four or five, maybe even one external API, and they have thousands of internal APIs. The, the one giant API has all the operation team hugging it uh, like a tree and, and babysitting it like a, like a pet. Uh, but the 5,000 internal APIs are uh, cattle on the loose, <laughs> right? It's not even cattle, it's uh, herding cats. Um, so uh, that has to change because it means developers cannot collaborate. We, we talk to... Uh, many developers that tells us they don't want to touch an API gateway ever again. 
because the experience of making those changes with the tickets and fighting with IT and, you know, buying uh, what time zone are you going to broadcast this? Let's say Japan, Olympics, nice, buying sake to anyone in the organization to get ahead of the line, right? It doesn't work. So gateway is one piece. So, so here's what um, the kind of how, how I think we... We address this, and, and the, early, the early feedback is, is phenomenal, right? We, we see a lot of excitement from, from prospects talking about it. And I think it also can benefit tremendously the postman community because at the end of the day, I think all of us are successful when developers love APIs <laughs> and developers don't kind of hate uh, the notion of uh, they're building APIs in secret until it's ready to be... Uh, this one stable um, kind of giant thing. And I love your, your Oracle uh, analogy because it's like we are shadowing things, small databases until we are ready to uh, expose the schema to our DBA and we kind of go, hey, can you please uh, look at what I did here? Uh, so, you know, in that analogy, the small tables will be the internal APIs and the giant Oracle will be the external does that make sense? Like from, from yeah. where? Yeah. So what, what is, what are the biggest things that, that are the biggest areas of friction for developers when it comes to these API gatekeepers? We're not going to come gateways because gateway would, would assume everything or things are allowed through the gate. Um, yeah. and, it, and it feels like APIs aren't making out the door. They would have use. They would have value. Partners would use them. The applications would use them. They would probably benefit, but they're, they're either not tested, secure, don't have the right policies. What are the the things that are keeping developers in a kind of DevOps, DevSecOps way from getting through these gatekeepers? Yeah. So so the first thing is the the role, the the, the fact that those internal APIs don't get exposed is not because the IT people are bad, right? It's because they are really not up to par with any standards. They, they are not, like you said, they are, they are not secure. They they don't. Uh, they don't follow any best practices. And it starts with, so when I mentioned the, the, the API grid is much more than a gateway, uh, you kind of alluded to, to point number one. It's like, how do I start? How do I get developers to build and design APIs that are uh, up to the standard of my organization, whether that be a security standard or like what kind of grouping I'm using, what kind of domain model I'm using, what, what is a good... Uh, best practice when I'm doing a, a destruct, destructive operation versus a read-only operation. And uh, we talked to, we, we are engaging in a, in a pilot right now with a large global bank that told us pretty much between 85 and 90% of their internal APIs are not up to uh, any standards that their architecture set. Just think about it for a minute. And they have hundreds of, and, and the reason this is happening is because there is no easy path for developers to start from uh, a boilerplate, right? If you look at the Spring community, there is something called uh, start.spring.io. It's a super popular uh, uh, starting point for Spring developers with millions of projects uh, starting there uh, every month. And the reason it's so popular, it gives you kind of this easy experience of, of dealing with the dependencies and getting your scaffold code uh, up and running. 
we, we kind of push something similar for the API world that allows developers to start very quickly, uh, but on um, curated designs. So they can get to those um, um, blessed architectures or blessed API structure uh, from the get-go. And they don't just copy paste the first example they found on Google, which happens to be the easiest, but also the furthest away from any corporate standards, right? So, so that's kind of one thing, how, how you're actually getting started in the right way. Um, the second thing is that if we follow this notion of, of continuous delivery, uh, we all understand now that you cannot just push code in the path to production uh, and expect it to you know, compile with something from, uh, from Docker Hub or from any open source library, right? There's got to be a, an adult supervision of how you build stuff, how you turn your source into an image. There is nothing like that in an API. There is no equivalent of a build pack to take kind of the concepts from Cloud Foundry that Tanzu is also adopting uh, with Cloud Native Build Pack that is super popular, this, this curated um, template or a recipe for a changing code into a runtime environment, there is nothing equivalent like a build pack for APIs. That, that's second item. How do you uh, actually make the API um, compile in a way? It's not really compilation, but uh, how do you deal with all the, 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 the calls that it's making, the performance? How do you, how do you even test it uh, in the right way? How do you make developers discovered it, right? So, so it's not just about testing, it's about do I am I using the right API in the right way? Do I have a portal where I can go and dynamically find what I need? And it's not based on documentation. You actually have the gateway generating the open API doc for you dynamically, right? So, so there is, it's all self-service. There is no human that you rely on to, to make those changes. Um, so does that make sense so far? So like the starting experience, the build experience, if you will, or the delivery experience. Um, yeah. And and I think where, where we see the most amount of disruption is in the role of the gateway itself. And, and now I'm getting finally getting to your question. None of this can work if every little change had to go to this giant gateway. And it's not, again, it's not because as the, uh, the, uh, the change management is bad or IT people are, you know, it's their life mission to slow developers down. It's all about blast radius. If you have one giant gateway, every little change can affect, can massively affect the rest of your organization. If the same gateway handles, you know, five internal APIs that a team in, uh, I don't know where is building at the same as our massive uh, API entry point for that for our business, they're going to meet the same standards. So the massive big API, okay. The small little one, you know, he's suffering because he's going through all that change management. So there's got to be a different way of architecting this. And what we're suggesting is much more of a federated approach. So you think about not one gateway, but dozens of gateways. And, and there, there was this term micro gateway that's sometimes being used. I, I, I kind of felt it was used in a different context that is a little bit archaic, but for lack of a better word, let's call it a micro gateway or an app friendly gateway. And you have many of these. And you can even think about coming back to that large bank that I was referring to. They want to set up a gateway or a micro gateway for every business application. So it's the proxy 
in front of your microservices. So think about a business application that has five, six, 10 microservices behind it. It has a small gateway. Um, and that gateway is where the collaboration starts. So that gateway feeds uh, a hub. That gateway handles all the internal communication between those micro APIs. Uh, that gateway can also be the point where you start thinking about the brownfield. How do that, how's that business application is accessing external services? External, I mean like third party, not necessarily uh, public services. Um, you have many of those. You may still have, you know, this one or two giant ones for, for the public APIs, but you're really separating nicely between your public facing APIs and your internal APIs and you're doing it in a federated uh, mode. And why is federated important? Because you have to do two things for this to work. You have to make it super developer friendly, so developers can just change a route, and within a millisecond, that route updates in the gateway. It cannot go through any kind of uh, manual processes, but at the same time, you want to keep this secure, because it's true that there is a statement that you build an internal API, it can become an external API tomorrow morning. I agree with that. You cannot just say the internal APIs are um, you know, internal quality forever. So the way we found this could work well is if you separate the lifecycle of the gateways from the route change. And that's kind of the, the third thing we offer in that API grid. It means that your DevSecOps or your DevOps team can manage the instances of the gateways separately from how developers are checking in routes. It's two, it's two very separate uh, items. You can think about developers with uh, changing a YAML file, which defines the route, and then there is a separate mapping into a gateway or many gateway instances that applies those routes. And that allows you to do, let's say, security updates to the gateway itself in a separate lifecycle than changing the routes. You can think about routes as part of your code base. Gateway is more part of your application infrastructure. And, and you can separate those two life cycles and even have two, maybe two separate pipelines for them. Um, so does that make sense? So kind of starting, yeah, building, yeah. federated approach that is very developer friendly. Um, and at the same time, separation of concerns between the gateway life cycle or the micro gateway life cycles and the uh, route life cycle. And so I, as a developer, I don't have to be burdened with the, the cognitive load of everything a gateway does when it comes to policies, security, all of that, with every iteration that I need to make on, on my API. And so is, you, you mentioned BuildKit earlier, is this, so an individual API, how I build an API, how I, it gets discovered, how it gets tested, but is there build kits for the gateway, say like, a new line of business or a new team gets stood up, can they rapidly set up a new gateway and a whole new process really fast yeah. and efficiently? Yes. So when I uh, mentioned many micro gateways, inherently that means that there's got to be an easy way to install them, a standard ways to control them, and uh, a very clean separation between what the gateway does and what the developer needs to worry about. So... Uh, None of that can, can, be a can be a reality if it takes you a week to install a gateway uh, for every instance. So we spend a lot of work at Tanzu uh, taking the Spring Cloud Gateway open source project, which is a very popular uh, Spring project, and, and making it um, 
commercial grade, of course, but also very easy to install on either Cloud Foundry or Kubernetes um, and achieve. So essentially within a, a few CRDs, you got the gateway up and running. It's nothing more than a Spring Boot app running in the backend. <laughs> and the engineers are going to kill me. It's a lot more than a Spring Boot app running in the backend. But from a, from a simplicity point of view, it's it's really really super easy to do. Uh, like even me, um, I, I I can run many gateways on <laughs> on different environments in minutes. It's it's very very easy, um, and you also can achieve high availability in a very simple. Um, just increase the instance count, and the gateway takes care of the rest. So the install is is uh, greatly simplified. But the second thing that that gateway does it really obstructs the developers to worry only about the things they need. So with Spring Cloud Gateway, which by the way, the name, don't get me started on naming, has nothing to do with Spring. It can support any language as long as it speaks for uh, HTTP, right? Uh, and it's, um, it's, it's fully multi-language. Um, we have many customers in production already using like front, uh, uh, Node front-end, uh, Java back-end, .NET, uh, it really doesn't matter. That's one of the beauties of this API world. It's, it, it abstracts the implementation beautifully. But back to the separation for developers. So with Spring Cloud Gateway, developers don't need to worry about SSO. That's a killer feature everywhere we go. The only thing a developer needs to do is add a tag in their YAML file or their JSON file says SSO true on a route. That's it, true or false, zero, Things beyond that, from a developer point of view, as simple as it can as it can get, and uh, tying this back to our first uh, example, uh, to our starting example, uh, we actually make it even that they don't have to say true because we're creating these boilerplate YAMLs for them. Where if it's a disruptive if it's a disruptive operation, let's say it has to be SSO protected, right? So, and you can validate that. So even even the, that decision can be. Uh, ignored, but let's assume at the very least the developer will say this route true or false, uh, protected. What happens behind the scene is quite interesting. The gateway is responsible for knowing that this route is true. Then it goes and looks for an SSO secret, uh, you know, and then does whatever it needs to do to have like the open ID connection working. And if it's in uh, the Tanzo application service environment, you can have a dedicated SSO plan for your uh, organization. If it's not like any OpenID Connect protocol will work, but neither the secret nor the definition or that flow has anything to do with the developers. That's part of the DevOps responsibility when they're setting up the gateway. So there is a very clean, there is nothing in the developer routes that potentially gonna be part of your code repo that has anything to do with SSO aside from that SSO true. So very clean separation, uh, very um, encouraging for developer productivity. And there is other examples like this, like token relay, same, same story, uh, filters. Uh, if a developer want to do rate limiting, it's very simple filter they apply in their route files. They don't worry about the implementation of that at all. Uh, they don't care about the... Um, how the gateway is deployed, if it's one instance, many instances, they, they only interface with, with the route file. Um, so we, we, we make this super easy for developers. We maintain that 
uh, policy and security on the DevOps side. But even then, we are not talking about one giant uh, centralized gateway. We're talking about a federated approach of, of many gateways, potentially fronting every business app you have. And how does, so each individual gateway has, I'm, I'm assuming, a, a standard set of policies, standard, yep. you know, uh, everything is that, how does that work in a governance standpoint? Does it, does it then get managed by a central uh, governance group that sets all those policies and, and defines those all across the gateways? Yeah, so, so it's really up to the, uh, the organization to decide how they want to run it. We, we see a spectrum of examples of that. There is the, the ones that think about it from a starting experience, which means that every gateway that is generated in this organization is going to be generated with the exact same policies, YAMLs. It's not even up to the DevOps persona to decide how, what are the different artifacts of the gateway. So there is no, all gateways are kind of the same, uh, in a sense of policies. Uh, there is, there is, um, these, there is other type of organizations that says, uh, the DevOps persona has the freedom to decide how and what to configure in the gateway. Um, and the way you manage all these different instances is you can look at them, for example, with uh, the gateway emits um, a, um, a, an endpoint for metrics and performance, whether you can consume that with the Tanzu observability or any APM tool. You can, you can think about it as just an app, right? Like I said, it's really just an app. So... You can, the way you manage, you know, 50 different boot apps is similar to the way you would manage the gateway. You can, something that is pretty popular that is coming up right now is that we have uh, integration into Tanzu observability or Wavefront, um, which follows the actuator endpoint from the gateway. And you can uh, aggregate all the gateway into one group or many groups. Let's say this is line of business A, line of business B, and you have uh, those gateways behind them and you can look at your route performance. So it really makes it, it's up to you how to manage it in a sense, but it's simple as managing a collection of apps. Um, but but federate, federated gateways allow for federated governance or centralized governance. governance. It, it's flexible enough. Correct. So, so you can absolutely say, I have a federated gateway deployment, but I have a centralized management. Uh, you can say, for example, that all the gateways are emitting the route definition into the same uh, uh, gateway portal, or, sorry, um, um, API portal. So you have one portal for that you can see all the gateways, and then you have different policies of who can access what. Or you can say, I want an API portal per line of business. So line of business B cannot access uh, APIs of line of business A. But in that case, you will... I think it will be wise to worry about how you can collaborate, right? So maybe they don't cannot access directly the APIs, but you want us, maybe you treat line of business B like Brownfield. So it's an external API from a line of business A point of view, but they can still still collaborate. But, but it's very flexible. It's not um, um, it's not dictated by us on, on how, you, how you should do it. Uh, and I can tell you from, from most of the conversation I'm, I'm having, um, when when it when the customer understands that the gateway is not one thing that is sacred and controlled by ops, but something that is much closer to the application and controlled by DevOps, they also buy in much easier into this federated management alongside federated deployment. Um, 
people and it, and it it load balances the the organizational the decision making down to the line of business or the devops because i think that's the part that some people are missing with the devops is is it's not just the technical it's the decision making it's the policies yeah. you want to give teams the ability to make those decisions but you sometimes still want to centralize how those policies get set you know encourage that collaboration and maybe a center of excellence or or something where where each all the everyone comes together to define those and but this sounds like it, it trickles down observability all the way down to the developer so when it comes to the observability can i as a developer see traffic and see and ha and have all that awareness around my routes and yeah. and understand what's happening absolutely you you can access the routes that you applied uh, into the gateway and see exactly how they performed. You can access, like, the, you have different slices and views on how you can see that. You can actually say, I want to have, because the route, apply, uh, the apply is nothing more than, you know, putting a YAML into the Kubernetes environment and updating a, a CRD object. You can say, hey, I'm, I'm applying these routes. I can see immediately the, the effect and come back and update. And I can do that uh, in my inner loop or like local dev environment and, and not affect uh, the other uh, live traffic on the gateway between teams. So you can have even, even different levels of access within the internal APIs, like my inner loop APIs that I'm just testing and then before I expose them to, to other developers. Uh, to your point, but I, I, I want to um, build on something you said, which I think is super important. The, the policy problem is there is no magic solution, in my opinion, once you've centralized everything into one gateway. And gateway is just an example. You said Oracle database. There is many examples like that. Once everything is in one place, you have to slice it and dice it uh, in a very rigorous manual way because the, the blast radius is huge. Once you separate this, and essentially you have different instances of API routes in that case, the policies become much simpler. And you can think about the deployment of these gateways as part of your policy. Like what, who can access what is defined at deployment time of the gateway, and it makes your life super, super easy, which brings us into this notion of brownfield. You want to be able to have developers access third-party uh, APIs or maybe APIs from another line of business as if it was the Spring Boot app next door, right? From a developer point of view, you don't want, you never want them to worry about networking and access and service mesh and all that. And there is something pretty interesting that I think is valuable from Tanzo. It's that combination between gateway, portal, and service mesh. And what I mean by that is that you can actually create these um, policies behind the scenes. Um, and if you heard this, uh, there is a notion called uh, um, global namespaces. You may you may heard about this. This is a GNS. This is something that um, we promote a lot from, from Tanzu um, uh, Service Mesh. But it's I think it's much bigger than just Tanzu. It's like how do I make the cross cluster Kubernetes world um, not a service mess, <laughs> but a service mesh, right? Like. It's it's so hard today, and it's definitely not developers. I would say it's almost even not DevOps. Like you got to be a very experienced SRE with a lot of K8 knowledge to actually make that happen. And it's not even about just K8. Like what happens if you have VMs and co containers running side by side? Like you have a lot of legacy stuff running on VMs. You have 
new apps running on containers, you, you gotta, you gotta, um, manage this better from a load balancing point of view and so on. So there's a set of assets that I think we, we bring to the table without promoting too much. I'm, I'm the furthest you can see from a sales guy, probably. <laughs> but, but you, you know, you have things like Avi load balancer, you have the Tanzan service mesh itself, you have the integration into the gateway. And the, the fact that the portal can um, get uh, access to that immediately on on the open API, and all of that means that there is a lot of technical mumbo jumbo behind the scene, so the developer will just see it as if it was the Spring Boot next door. So from his or her point of view, it's a, it's a same experience. But of course, you have uh, the strictest policy that you want being, um, to to strict that access. And that kind of the balance that I think uh, customers would love to strike between productivity and control. Um, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, first of all, I'm going to talk to your your VP marketing leadership because you need to be in the game. They need to use you to name things because you've got some of the best names <laughs> oh, for things. I, I really think you should be. <laughs> well, um, I'm, I'm good friends way. with her, so so maybe I'll get out of it. But uh. yeah. <laughs> Um, but from what what API Federation at uh, Gateway Federation at, at the level you described, so as far as the delivery of, of and building of APIs, it's really flexible and it fits with domain driven design and 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 really carving up the organization in in meaningful groups and chunks so that you can uh, deliver the most meaningful services and APIs. But I would say what also what I'm seeing from the front end is you know, I'm doing a lot of uh, healthcare and finance APIs and standardization when it comes to different countries. So you got data sovereignty, you've got EU regulation when it comes to PSD2, you've got US regulations uh, coming or just happened around the fire specification in healthcare. And so this type of federation and policies can really speak to how you carve up your global business in a way that you can serve up external or partner services in a way that that is all you know coherently policy driven as well that's pretty powerful yeah that, that's totally true and, and we talked a lot about internal apis but everything we said on the federated approach like you just mentioned applied for things you expose externally based on on whatever policies you have externally and what what data do you want or what access do you want to expose and uh, another example I'm working with right now in, in Europe, it, it's around a utility company that wants to have third parties use their APIs to build like IoT apps or smart apps for, for energy consumption, but they don't have a clean way of exposing uh, certain APIs into that third parties. So the only option they have is to rebuild these APIs as, at the engineering level to actually only access the data they need instead of reusing the internal APIs they already have just with a federated uh, sliced approach. And the reason is because they only have one giant gateway and that's the only way to expose um, those, those APIs. So, so that, that flexibility also gives you, in some cases, prevents the need to rebuild APIs uh, if they're already good enough for, for, uh, for your standards and you just have an access challenge yeah and and how what you're exposing in germany versus what you're exposing in france yep. the policies can deal with the regulation how the data is stored what's available what's not and i just did an episode with uh ford 
you know, about their fleet management of, of vehicles and what it's like to manage the data around an IoT device with wheels, you know, when it's rolling down and the road and how it's connected. And so he, he was talking about the velocity they need to deliver new APIs to take that data. But again, because of regulation, the rules around what data can be collected, what can't be, who has access to that moves just as fast as the technology. So having a federated gateway approach to all of that by country, by region, by line of business, by you know whatever the, the, the bounded context that makes sense and having uh, policies that, and, and what you said about the gateway management and the policy management and the, the, uh, the build kit for not just the individual APIs, but the actual gateway. I mean, that's kind of like, you know, Legos, rather than having a big box of Legos, you have the kits, you know, to build yeah. the, the Millennium Falcon or build the different things. And it's ready to go because, uh, I mean, most engineers I know really aren't engineers. They're just reverse engineers, meaning they only program what they're taught or what they're shown. So having build kits at all levels is sounds like a pretty powerful approach to this. Yeah, that, that, that actually goes, um, I mentioned the starting experience, uh, internally, uh, it's called the App Accelerator. The, the power or the effectiveness of these curated templates always, well, it surprised me, but it doesn't surprise me because I was a developer myself. Like 95% of the developers we talk to, they just apply the first example they see in Google, <laughs> or they just take the code that was built by their, uh, their friend next door and just reuse it. Uh, and and that's, a, that's, that's a bad thing, but it's also a good thing in the sense that if you create the templates, easy enough to access. So it's not an architectural committee. I used to run the architectural committee at Yahoo, so I guess I was one of the most hated folks there. Uh, but you don't have those gates of manual approvals. It's almost... Um, um, uh, this is actually not for me, but from a, from a client I spoke to the other day, it's like, oh, I get it. You're, you're giving us CAS. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I just spent two hours talking to you about Spring and apps. You're, telling, you're talking to me about CAS and containers? He said, no, not container as a service, curation as a service. <laughs> because yeah, he understood that this app acceleration gives his architect uh, a power they never had today up until now. The only way for them to control was to publish a 40-page white paper and hope developers will read it, which they never do, or gate everything on a, on a architectural committee. You've got to schedule six months in advance because everybody's trying to get the time of those four senior architects. What if the output of those architectural committees already this app acceleration templates that every developer can just go into a website, complete SaaS experience, and get those boilerplate code for them. This was actually in the context of a Spring app, but the exact same principle will apply to what is a good route definition? What is a good way of, of getting started with, with kind of a clean way of um, routing it? And to your example about Europe, it's like even the routes themselves, sometimes you, 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 know, you can expose something in the route uh, signature and sometimes you can't. And you can have the exact same API for different countries, but it has to look different because it doesn't have the word customer in it or, or something, right? So even those little stuff are super hard when everything is kind of locked down and, and the change management is, is 
you know, like changing a database schema and not like applying a source change in, in Git. Yeah, but these templates, I mean, for developers, so rather than, as you said, you know, they have to go get approval and it takes six months to do something, they can take this, it saves them time, saves them uh, energy and, and headache because it's everything's there. They can take it, they can run it locally, see how it all works, run it in a container. They can deploy it, play with it. And you could have different templates depending on line of business or depending on country or region. And then all the learning and education is built into the template. So the, so the developers learn, you know, they're never going to read that white paper. You put out the white paper on how to do everything. No one's going to read that or a, a few people will, but most developers won't. But if they can get hands-on and play with the template and see how it works, you're teaching them good design. You're teaching them good development practices. You're teaching them all in that in that one template. Yeah, and it's self-service, so uh, it's even faster than searching in Google. And it's the, it's not ending up as a trash code. Uh, it's not just that they they are never going to read the document. It forces the organization learner later uh, down the, uh, the application lifecycle to apply all these manual gates because you cannot trust the developers that these APIs are ever going to be meet, meeting standards. So now you have another gate of, hey, we have 5,000 internal APIs here. Um, we got to make, we got to invest an effort now to realize like, are they up to code? Uh, how are they, uh, are their best practices? Are they doing what they're supposed to do? Um, so, so I think it's it solves uh, a bunch of problems um, ahead of ahead of time. So, so this show is, is designed for leadership, business leadership. We do get down into the technical details as as we've shown, but how do you convince leadership, VPs, CXOs to to go all in on APIs and and an, and a federated API approach? How do you how do you convince them? Yeah. So uh, that's a great question. Uh, so kind of the fun in my job is I can talk in the same day to a C-level and then to a, like a hands-on developer and it's going to be one Zoom after another. So, so it kind of forces me to think about the high-level pitch, the low-level pitch all the time. Uh, usually what I tell executives is that the world of building modern apps or, or modern microservices, if you will, is is changing, right? Whether you like it or not, the APIs are become a de facto standards of how your teams are going to collaborate. And it's not gonna be, um, you know, national roles type <laughs> diagrams. It's like, th that's the modern contract. And you gotta learn to manage it. It's not enough for you to manage and control the few external that, that you have, if, if any, you have to be able to manage those APIs internally. And by manage, it means that have control, but don't kill the productivity. Because it's very easy to put these gateways and just say, make them a, a hardcore gateway, right? Like everything is manually approved. But it's a very slippery slope from that to killing, completely killing your innovation. So, so there has to be kind of a, a as an executive, you got to think about this middle ground of or this happy path of how do I keep my developers productive and still helping them collaborate and, and use those APIs as a way to uh, um, you know save time, save bugs because they can use stuff other people already built, 
um, and managed it in a way that controls my, uh, um, meet my standards. And the thing about federated is federated looks very scary until you understand the blast radius concept. So even with exec executive, I tell them, just think about it this way. We're not suggesting put everything in one basket, but you know, make the basket less secure. We're suggesting like start separating the basket into mini baskets and, and um, you know, the separation of concerns takes a lot of, of kind of the, the headache of controlling it. And when you couple it with a better starting experience or with a curated starting experience, that looks much less scary um, than, than, you know, it, it was in the start. The challenge, I think, as an industry, and James Waters talks about it a lot if, if you interview him, it's like, the, in a sense, the API industry got everything backwards, right? We started from the operational experience and gated everything, and we completely forgot about the developers. So now when you go and it's even hard to have an API conversation without dev. That's crazy, right? Usually when you talk about API platforms, you find on the other side of the Zoom the, the VP of Ops. What do you care about APIs? Oh, because I'm responsible. Nobody touch my Apogee. I'll kill you if you touch my Apogee. How many developers are actually changing APIs here? Well, I don't know. They, they're probably too scared of me to even think about it. So, right? so, so that, that's kind of the hard part of the conversation about the perception of, of APIs as, as an app dev thing and not as an ops thing. Um, so it's kind of the challenges uh, we see out there. Yeah, I mean, this really reflects, so I just went through the, the Gartner Magic Quadrant process. And, uh, you know, Postman, we have 15 million developers. We're, we're an, uh, an HTTP client, we're an API client. That's where we've made developers' lives easier. But over the last few years, we've become a full lifecycle API management solution, to use Gartner terms. But we consider ourselves an API platform. And our relationship with the developer is what you just described. But we really strongly believe in both sides of, of, of the relationship. And I really feel like you know that's the area where Gartner needs to spend more time is, I don't know if it's been Apogee, Mastery, and, and, the, and MuleSoft wagging Gartner or, or vice versa, but they're very provider focused. It's, it's API yep. gateways, management, and, and then they have one section where they go, what, what sort of consumer stuff do you do? You know, they ask just one section like about developers and it's just, but it's a big long document about everything API provider side. So it's a very one-sided um, I feel like the last decade coming out of the service oriented architecture world has, it's gotten better because it's APIs and it's using more of the web, but it's still very provider uh, heavy. Whereas you said the developers and the DevOps and the agency and autonomy and them being able to move fast. This is why APIs happen in my opinion is the service oriented architecture laboratory, enterprise laboratory, APIs kind of jumped out of the Petri dish and started growing because it allowed tech companies to move faster and do yeah. do things quicker when it comes to mobile. So I think your description of, of that relationship and how, how it's got to evolve at the gateway level in a federated way is, is pretty important. Yeah, and I, I totally agree with you. This frustrates me every, every time I read these reports. It's not just... 
and I won't get into the why. I, I, I can guess that your guess is very accurate, but let's leave it at that. Uh, but it's not only provider focused, it's infrastructure up focused. So, so the, the reader, like what I, what I would tell Gardner is like, Hey guys, like why would an app dev lead ever read your API report? Like, doesn't that sound a, a bit dumb to you? This, we're talking about APIs here. You have application in the freaking acronym, but I don't think anyone in app dev will spend the time reading this document because it talks all about how you stand up the mechanics of APIs that he shouldn't, he or she shouldn't care about at all, right? So um, it's, it's all backwards, but but I, but that's what's kind of gives you and I some fun stuff to do. I think we can change. Uh, there is a big um, disruption going on, and we haven't even started talking about the app mod app modernization. I think that's the the early but biggest wave uh, when more and more organizations will realize the rewrite approach doesn't work. And there's got to be a way to keep the lights on on the old stuff and a smarter way of connecting the new, the new experience. And what app modernization is really about is creating new experiences greenfield, connecting to existing backend system with a brownfield API, not rewriting those backend systems. Um, so this is how we make brownfield development more attractive and sexy. Yeah. So people aren't just focusing on the greenfield. Well, I would argue there is no such thing as a greenfield development in an enterprise. There is no way to build a real enterprise app uh, without touching some of your backend systems, right? Yeah. Otherwise, you you go work at a startup, build something on AWS. You don't have to. Where's the value for an enterprise? You gotta connect to yeah. something that already exists in, in the majority of the cases. The question is how you do that effectively, and and we already see patterns that comes from the external API worlds like rate limiting. I'm, I'm working with a customer now that adopted this brownfield API approach to one of their legacy environment, and they put an API proxy in front of it. And that was all great and they were proud of themselves, but it turns out the clients are bringing down the legacy JE app four times a week because the request rate is too high. So, hey, what? You got, you're using Spring Cloud Gateway already. You have a route file. Just use the uh, a rate limit route. <laughs> and it turns out that's all they had to do. It had zero effect on the app uh, because the app never got to that request rate that that, that they uh, they actually needed or or they they consumed. It was more about the number of clients accessing semi-seriously. And then, you know, it turned out from hey, we got to hire Accenture for an emergency six months project to rewrite this JE monolith to, you know, thirty four seconds of adding rate limits in an API route. Just you know. Now, just kind of an anecdotal example, but you can you can think about these patterns are much that for you start thinking about the modernization of an enterprise environment, uh, and you agree to the or align with the fact you need a better approach than rewrites, then uh, that that could be interesting. A lot of a lot of folks are afraid of public APIs and everything that goes with them because. It, they're public and, and it's it's very risky and scary. But do you feel like that kind of adoption of some of these practices from public APIs, but bringing them internally would help us make our APIs more mature and ready, ready to be public? Yeah, I, I think I think the more 
uh, when we talked about internal APIs can become external at any second, uh, the, the, the idea behind it is that if you dramatically improve the way you, you start, control, and deploy internal APIs and the way you make your developers more productive, because similar to the fact that the IT ops guys are not bad people for gating everything, developers are not bad people for taking the first example they see in Google, whether that's secure or not because they want to be productive. They're sick of waiting for these architectural committees. So both sides have good intentions, but the process kind of kills it on both ends. So if you, have, if you get developers a much easier starting experience, get things uh, curated and built in a much more automated way, you will, your internal APIs are guaranteed to become a much higher quality, you know, almost in a way that you can uh, reduce, not, not Take off, but to reduce the, uh, the, the kind of, what's the word? Um, the scare factor of exposing things externally because it was the nice thing about the federated approach is conceptually the gateway doesn't care if it's external or internal. It's just what kind of ingress rule do you add to it, right? So if it works well on the internal API conceptually, again, I'm not saying put an Nginx now on every gateway and boom, but what conceptually I'm saying, if the APIs, internal APIs are up to code and up to standard and are much more uh, in control, the switch to exposing some of them externally is going to be uh, much simpler than it is today. Yeah, wow. Um, we could go on forever, but I think we're hitting the hour here. Um, but I, I kind of feel like I'm going to have to have you back to explore some of these other topics. Well, and I'd love to do a demo for you at some point to your uh, audience, like yeah. the, uh, this API grid demo I'm running with customers, uh, showing some of the Tanzer concepts and how that becomes easier. Um, we can do that. And I think, yeah, this uh, uh, your your audience are kind of the, uh, I think, the, the, the reason we are, uh, it's, it's almost like I need to apologize to your audience for what we've done with APIs so far. <laughs> we as well, um, I, I'm kind of, I want to keep pushing. I'm going to get other API management providers. I'm going to get MuleSoft folks and Apogee folks and Kong and other folks to step up to the table and, and answer some of the same questions that, that we discussed. And so I would love to start figuring out some other sessions um, that involves, all right, show, you know, what's different about API management today. And then I don't think, as you said, we didn't spend enough time talking about, you know, the modernization and digital transformation and what's coming next, you know, so I would love to get you back for more of that, but, uh, um, sure. we just got to figure out the right format. So, um, well, thank you. I appreciate your time today. This has been great. Uh, very, very exciting conversation and, and look forward to talking more in the future. Awesome. Um, glad you enjoyed it. And I got to go thanks my dogs for not barking. So that was a surprise. <laughs> I hope they're OK, because it's not a usual thing with them. <laughs> it's, understand, understand. My dog's laying here right here, but she's oh. sound asleep. She doesn't um, care. So you got to teach me she how hears to do that. Yeah, she hears this all day, every day, API, blah, blah, blah. So she's pretty used to it. but. Anyways, have a good day, Deckel. Thank you. Thank you very much.